starting now. Black Clock Audio Tales, May 2019, Hawaiian Folklore and Legends, edited by Daniel Spitzer, music by Kevin McLeod. Help the show by sharing, rating, liking, or five-star giving wherever you listen to or rate podcasts. Support the show by hitting the patron button on pgttcm.podbean.com or by going to paypal.me slash pgttcm. And don't forget to visit pgttcm.com. Brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Check out their new Dino Sound Slippers. Is that the name? They roar every third step. Very cool. Conway, England. The Legends and Myths of Hawaii by King David Kalakaua. Chapter 6 The Royal Hunchback. Characters Kanipahu, King of Hawaii. Kalapana, son of Kanipahu, Kamaiyo, a usurper of the throne, chief of Kau, Iola, sister of Kamaiyo, Makia, daughter of Iola, Waiaku, a military chief, abductor of Iola, Nanoa, a chief in the royal household, the royal hunchback, the legend of Kanipahu, the grandson of Pili. About the period of AD 1160, Kanipahu was the nominal sovereign of the island of Hawaii. He was the grandson of Pili, who near the close of the previous century came from Samoa at the solicitation of the high priest Pau to assume the moiship left vacant by the death of Kapawa whose grandfather was probably the first of the southern chiefs who came to the Hawaiian group during the important migratory movements of the 11th and 12th centuries. Although the sovereignty of the entire island was claimed by the Pili family, disturbances were frequent in the time of Kanipahu, and a few of the native chiefs of the old stock of Nanaula, which held sway in the group for nearly six centuries, refused to yield allegiance to the new dynasty. To strengthen his power and placate the native chiefs and people, Kanipahu took to wife Hualani, the fifth in descent from Mawiki of the Nanuala line, and subsequently Alekua, who was probably of the same native strain. The Makaina, or common people, however, seemed to have been better satisfied with their new rulers than were their former chiefs, who had been supplanted in authority, and it was therefore with difficulty that they could be aroused to a resistance to political conditions, which imposed upon them no hardships, which they had not borne under their old rulers, and no responsibilities with which they were not already familiar. And besides, the newcomers from the south had introduced new laws, new customs, and new products of the soil, as well as new gods and new forms of worship. They had brought with them the Kaeke, or sacred drum, and Pululu'u, inviolable taboo staff, crowned with balls of white or black kappa. They had also instituted the title of Maore or supreme sovereign, whereas the several islands before had been ruled by scores of independent chiefs, holding as large a district as he was able to defend. They had established Ahahali, or College of Chiefs, through which the rank of every noble might find recognition and be perpetuated in his family. They had constructed grander 
Hyas or temples and shut the populace from the observance of many of their religious ceremonies. The tabas of the chiefs and priests had been enlarged and rendered more strict, and the priesthood had become more powerful and independent. The persons of the Mo'i and high chiefs had become more sacred, and they exercised their functions with increased display and ostentation. These additional exactions on the part of the new rulers, however, were partially if not wholly compensated for to the laboring masses by the protection brought to them through the political change against the oppressions of their petty chiefs and landowners. It was therefore probable that, on the whole, their social and industrial condition was quite as tolerable under the new as under the old native regime. Kanipahu resided principally in Kohala, where his grandfather had taken up his abode and constructed mansions consistent with his sovereign state, and it was there that the high priest Pao, who brought Pele to the group, established himself and family, after first landing in Puna and erecting to his god the temple of Wahula, the ruin of which are still seen near the village of Kahawalia. After the arrival of Pele, it is probable that Pio removed with him to the more populous district of Kohala, and there remained as his high priest and advisor. At Huepa, he erected the large Hei'o of Mukini, the stones for which were passed from hand to hand, but Nui a distance of nine miles, a circumstance indicating the presence of a large population on Hawaii at that time. As it was one of the largest temples in the group, its walls enclosing an irregular parallelogram having an aggregate length of 817 feet with a height of 20 feet and a breadth of 8 feet at the top. A vast amount of labour must have been required to transport the material over so long and rough a road, with no appliance more effective than human muscle. But the walls are so well built that they are standing today, and from a secret crypt in the wall of the south side of Heiiu were taken but a few years ago and are still preserved two finely polished stone discs of a diameter of eight or ten inches which is not probable were the two strained idols which tradition says power brought with him over the great waters from Apollo and which were hidden by some faithful kahu or servant of the Heiu when the ancient worship of the people was abolished by the second Kamehameha in 1819. Kanipahu was a just and considerate sovereign and sought by every peaceful means to harmonize the conflicting interests of the chiefs and strengthen and consolidate his power. To this end, as already stated, he allied himself by marriage to the Nanula line of chiefs and attached to his person and household a number of prominent nobles of native lineage. The result was that for some years he ruled in peace and race jealousies were gradually wearing away when a circumstance occurred which suddenly terminated the reign of Kanipahu and drove him into exile. It was a sultry afternoon, near the time of the annual Feast of Lono, perhaps in 1172, that Kanipahu, after having dispatched the business of the day, was reclining on a couch and mat in the cool shade of a palm grove within the walled enclosure of the palace grounds. If indeed two large wooden and thatched buildings, 
each a hundred or more feet in length by forty in breadth, with eight or ten smaller houses among the banana groves in the rear, may be called a palace. The grounds were thickly studded with shade and fruit trees, embracing almost every variety of value found on the island. Here and there were shaded walks and vine-wreathed nooks in which rude seats had been constructed, and as the sentinels lounged lazily at the entrance and the cahoots of the king languidly administered to his wants, the scene was a picture of royal power and barbaric comfort peculiar to the Polynesian islands, but scarcely less imposing than the forms and architectural environments of the Jarls and princes of northern and central Europe at that period. Each of the personal attendants of the king was of the lesser nobility, and his office was one of honour. Over the head of the drowsing sovereign, Pakahili, or Kahili bearer, at brief intervals, waved his tuft of painted plumes, while at a respectful distance stood the spittoon-bearer, Ipakuha, and head steward, Abu-Bukubu. The king was suddenly aroused by a tumult at the outer gate. There was a sound of angry voices mingled with a clashing of spears, and immediately after, a tall chief, clad in mahro, feather cape and helmet, and bearing a stout ihe, or javelin, strode towards the royal mansion, followed by a number of excited chiefs and their retainers. Reaching the palace, the chief turned and faced his clamouring pursuers with a look of defiance. To shed blood there was an offence which no one was bold or reckless enough to commit, and, after one of the number had first been dispatched to the king to ascertain his pleasure, the entire party of chiefs repaired to the royal presence, leaving their weapons behind in the hands of the guards, who had hurried toward the scene of disturbance. Bowing low before the king, who had risen to a sitting posture on his couch, the chiefs waited for him to break the silence slowly scanning his auditors, all but one of whom he knew and trusted. Kanipahu finally fixed his eyes upon the face of the stranger and quietly said, Your face is strange to me. Who are you and what brings you here? Great chief, I am Kamayo, a chief of Kau, was the reply. And I came to Kohala in search of my sister, Iola was stolen and brought here about the close of the last season of rain. Have you found her? inquired the king. I have found her, replied Kameole, bowing his head. Who took your sister away from Kau? resumed the king. That man, said Kameole, pointed to one of the chiefs present. At least so I presume, since he was seen in Kau about the time of her disappearance, and I found her in his possession here. The chief designated was a large and well-favoured young man, with a palm tree tattooed upon each of his muscular thighs, and wearing a number of gaudy ornaments around his neck. He was an Aiikoa, or military chief, without possessions and in the service of the king, to whom he was distantly related. Turning towards him, Kanupahu said, Speak, Waikuku, and answer the words of the chief of Kau. Glancing savagely at Kamaiole, Waikuku bowed to the king and replied, It is true that Iola came with me from Kau. 
where I went to visit the brother of my mother, but she came willingly, although I admit without the consent of Kamaiom. Eh? Waikaku is one of the blood of noble chiefs, said the king in a tone of conciliation. Why not permit your sister, since it is her will to remain with him in peace? She may remain, was Kamaiole's grim reply. And well may she remain, exclaimed Waikaku bitterly. Waiola is dead. Today even a few breaths passed. Her brutal brother found, and with his own hand, killed her. Killed her? repeated the king. Yes, killed her, continued Waikuku. And but that her cowardly murderer sought the protection of the royal enclosure, my spear would have tasted his blood. Speak, and give good reason for this murder of the wife of Waikuku, said the king sternly, addressing Kameole. Or, by great Lono, I will downward command your face. When a prisoner of war or malefactor was brought before an ancient Hawaiian king, if his order was downward to the face, the prisoner was taken away and slain at once by one of the royal executioners. But if it was upward to the face, his life was spared either for complete pardon, slavery or sacrifice to the gods. Giving little regard to the threat of the king, but burning with wrath at the insulting language of Waikuku, Kamaioli proudly answered, I am of the Ahalihi of Hawaii. My war canoes are red, and pennons float at their masttips. The blood of Nanula is in my veins, and my ancestors were of the Ali Nui, were kings here, generations before Pili landed did at Kohala, Kohala, or the Pamakuas, blasted the shores of Kiel. With a rank befitting, it was my purpose to mate my sister. But she secretly became the wife of a marauding Kuuku, possibly by force, probably by the charm of his flies and the glitters of shells. And I followed and slew her, that her blood and mine might not be degraded by being mingled with that of Waikuku. Puuku, hissed Waikuku, enraged at the low rank contemptuously given him by Kamaioli, and making a hostile menace towards the speaker. Kamaioli regarded Waikuku for a moment with a look of disdain, and then continued, The occupation of this Waikuku, this woman-stealer, is that of war, I have been informed. He boasted that his spear would have tasted the blood of Kamaioli had he not sought the protection of the royal grounds. I came here through no fear of his arm or the spears of his friends, but to explain to the king why I had shed blood within sight of the royal Halle. Since he talked so bravely of blood and spears, I challenge him to make good his words with me beyond the palace walls. The matter is solely between us. I am prepared to answer to him in words of combat what I have done today. Or if, as I suspect, he lacks the courage to give his warlike training a test so public, I will ward a spear with such of his friends, one by one, as may well dispose to make his grievance theirs. The chiefs looked at each other in amazement at the broad challenge of Kamaioli, and the king seemed to be scarcely less astounded. But the proposal could not be deemed either unfair or unusual. 
since, according to the usage of the time, Kamaiole was answerable to Waikuku for the death of Iola. The stinging remarks of the dauntless cow chief left to Waikuku no pretext or excuse for declining the challenge, and the king somewhat reluctantly consented to a settlement of the matter by the arbitrament of single combat with such weapons as might be mutually agreed upon. Among the members of the royal household who witnessed this remarkable interview with the king was a chief of the old native line called Nanoa. Admiring the cool courage of Kamiole and feeling for him something of a sympathy of lineage, he proffered to stand his friend and adviser in the forthcoming encounter, and the arrangements finally made were that the hostile, were that the hostile parties were to meet just at sunset in a grove immediately back of the palace enclosure. They were to be armed each with two spears and a javelin. The spears were first to be used when the combatants approached within twenty paces of each other. These being thrown without ending the battle, parties were to advance to close encounter with their javelins, with the discretion of either throwing or retaining them in hand. No other weapons were to be used, and the conditions of the meeting were such that the king, who proposed to be present, did not deem it probable that there would be loss of life especially as he had resolved to put an end to the combat with the first wound received by either promptly at the time appointed the principals were on the ground the attendants of camaioli were nowhere to be seen by his orders they had quietly left the village two hours before and the only friend at his side was nanoa he had thrown aside his cloak and helmet and stood stern and motionless at the place assigned him with a spear in his right hand and another with a javelin at his feet with limbs and shoulders bare and beard and hair black at midnight veiling his neck kamaiole leaned upon his spear a picture of barbaric strength and courage thirty paces in front of kamaioli stood waikuku similarly armed and clad less calm than his adversary around him were a score or more of high chiefs some rallying and others advising him but he remained gloomily silent nervously awaiting the arrival of the king and the word for action in a few minutes kanu pahu accompanied by a number of armed attendants arrived and took a seat prepared for him at a point about equally distant from the two combatants it being announced that everything was in readiness the king signalled the word to be given and the hostile chiefs advancing five paces each were in a moment balancing their long spears for fight the spear of waikuku first shot through the air in a line direct for his adversary's breast but the latter adroitly turned it from its course with a touch from his own weapon which he in turn launched at waikuku without effect the second spears were thrown to the injury of neither when they grasped their javelins and slowly and warily began to advance it was an exciting moment as each had gripped his weapon with both hands it was apparent that neither ihe would be thrown and a hand-to-hand struggle was inevitable the king drew nearer to obtain a better view of the closing conflict and the spectators eagerly watched every movement of the advancing chiefs 
Approaching within striking distance, the javelins being about six feet in length, a few feints were made, and Waikuku ventured a desperate thrust at the breast of his opponent. The movement was evidently expected, perhaps invited, for like a flash the point of the ihe was thrown into the air, and the next moment Waikuku received a thrust through the side. He fell, javelin in hand, and Kamaiole was lifting his weapon to strike his prostrate enemy to the heart when, Stop! came the command of the king. Heedless of the royal order, or too greatly excited to be able to restrain his hand, Kamiole savagely drove his javelin into the breast of Waikuku, inflicting a death wound. Downward the face thundered the king, exasperated at Kamiole's apparent defiance of his order. The chiefs began to move forward to seize or slay the offender. Knowing that his death had been decreed, Kamiole recklessly poised his ihe, red with the lifeblood of Waikuku, and with a wild cry of, Yes, downward the face, hurled it at the heart of Kanipahu. With exclamations of rage and horror, the spectators sprang toward Kamiole, most of them dropping their unwieldy spears and crests and grasping their pahuhas, or daggers of ivory or hardened wood, as they advanced. For an instant, Kamiole hesitated whether to defend himself to the death with the javelin of the dying chief, or take the almost equally desperate chances of escape by breaking through the lines of his encircling enemies. He chose the latter, and grasping the javelin, started towards the king, with a view of drawing his assailants in that direction. This object being accomplished, he suddenly turned to the right, and charged and made an opening through the throng at a point that seemed to be the weakest. As he flew past the yielding line, he miraculously escaped the spear and knife thrusts aimed at him, and succeeded in putting himself beyond the reach of spear and sling before real pursuit was made. The javelin hurled at the king was received in the shoulder of a faithful attendant who had opportunely thrown himself in front of his royal master. And so rapid and confusing were the movements following that Kanipahu had scarcely recovered from his consternation at the bold assault upon his life before he learned that Kamiole had escaped. Giving orders for a vigorous pursuit of the fugitive, the king walked to the body of Waikuku and, discovering that life was extinct, directed its respectful removal and then proceeded sadly to the royal mansion. Kamiole was not overtaken. He was strong and a fleet of foot, and as darkness soon intervened in his favour, he was able to elude his pursuers. He reached the coast in safety, and boarding a canoe awaiting him in charge of his attendants, set sail for Kau. This provision was a hasty flight. Kohala renders it certain that Kamiole meditated desperate work on landing there, and the relation of his subsequent exploits has shown how successfully he performed it. Kamiole supposed he had killed his sister and Waikuku, who had seen her just before his unfortunate encounter, thought she had but a few minutes to live, but the wounds inflicted did not prove fatal, and Iola finally recovered and became the mother of a daughter to a dead husband. 
Tradition attributes her recovery to the especial prayers of the high priest; but careful nursing and a good constitution were probably the saving means, assisted by the fortunate escape of the vital organs from serious injury. Returning to Kau, Kamaiole began to prepare for war at once, not doubting in a revolt against Kanipahu for the purpose of transferring the sovereignty of the island to a ruler of the old Nanuala line, and restoring to them the simple worship of their fathers and the possessions of which they had been despoiled by the southern invaders. The appeal was not without effect. Substantial aid was promised to Kona, Kau, Puna, and Hilo, and in less than three months, Kamiole found himself at the head of an army large enough not only to protect him at Kau, which was doubtless the original purpose of the movement, but to carry the war into Kahala and effect a general revolution. Whatever may have been the plans of Kanapahu concerning the rebellious Kau chief, he certainly seemed to be in no haste to put them in execution, for when Kamaoli arrived in Kohala at the head of his forces, he was but feebly opposed. Tradition fails to account for the apathy of Kanipahu in the face of the supreme danger confronting him. All we are told is that, finding it impossible to raise an army strong enough to suppress the formidable revolt, he left his sons with a trusted friend in the valley of Waimanu, in the district of Hamakua, and sought refuge for himself on the island of Molokia. Iola, fearing to meet her brother, or that he might learn that she still lived, also found an asylum with the young sons of Kanipahu in the secluded valley of Waimanu. Thus, Kamiole assumed the sovereignty of Hawaii almost without opposition, and Kanipahu lived quietly and unknown at Kalale on the small island of Molokai. He dressed and comported himself as a simple commoner, performing his own work, bearing his own burdens, and accepting all the hardships to which the poor and entitled were subject. He won the love of his neighbours for his kindness, and on two occasions took up arms to assist them in repelling plundering raids from Maui. And so well did he use his weapons that his humble friends were astonished and thought he must have been trained in the arts of war even if he was not of chiefly blood. It is well known that the chiefs, as a class, were physically larger than the masses, so much so that they claimed, and still claim, a descent distinct from that of the common people. Kanipahu was nearer seven than six feet in height, and his size was suggestive of rank, but he habitually stooped his head and shoulders that his height might be subject to less remark, and laboured more industriously than any of his neighbours in order to convince them that he was reared to toil. And in the end, as the years came and went, toil became a comfort to him, for it occupied his thoughts and gave him dreamless and refreshing slumber. Let us now pass over a period of eighteen years, from the accession of Kamiole to the sovereignty of Hawaii. Kanipahu was still a labourer on the island of Molokai, and his sons had grown to manhood in the secluded valley of Waimanu. 
Their rank and family ties known only to the few who could be trusted. One of these sons was Kalapana, and he had married Makea, the daughter of Iola. Her father was the dead Waikuku, and her uncle was Kamiole, the moi of Hawaii. Kamiole's reign had been 18 years of almost continual domestic turmoil and popular dissatisfaction. He was cruel, selfish and arrogant, but he was also a cool and sagacious soldier, and his craft and courage had thus far enabled him to thwart the organization of discontent and enforce obedience to his authority. He had even succeeded in securing the allegiance of every prominent chief in six districts of Hawaii, a political condition such as had never been before been achieved by any of his predecessors. Widespread changes in feudatory tenures were the principal causes of internal trouble. Under the Pili dynasty, the land boundaries of the native chiefs had been greatly shifted and narrowed to make room for the chiefs of the new regime. In attempting to restore the old feudal boundaries as far as possible and adjust to the new, Kamaiole had not only stirred up bitter strifes among the nobles, but had unwittingly disturbed the vassalage of the masses and therefore rendered all classes restless and distrustful. Finally, the discontent became so general among the Maka'anana that they appealed to the head of the Pa'a'o family, the high priest of the kingdom, for advice and assistance. They declared that they would no longer submit to the tyranny of Kamaole and the exactions of his favoured chiefs, and demanded a new ruler. Tradition ascribes this movement almost wholly to the labouring people, but it is more than probable that the priesthood took an early, if not initiatory, part in it, since the high priest seems to have known that Kanipahu was still living, and at once dispatched a messenger to Molokai, informing the exiled king that the people were ripe for rebellion, and advising him to repair to Hawaii at once and place himself at the head of the discontented thousands who would rejoice at his coming. Fearful of treachery, Kanipahu declined to make any promises to the messenger, and in disguise the high priest himself proceeded to Kalaye and urged the old chief to return and reassert his authority on Hawaii. Kanipahu was profoundly moved at the words of the high priest, and no longer doubted the sincerity and good faith of the tempting offer. But he declined to accept it, and, when urged for the reasons, rose sadly to his feet and said, Look at these hands, hardened and crooked with toil. Look at this face, grimed and wrinkled with exposure to the sun and rain. Behold my bent head, and the unsightly hump that old age and stooping labour have placed upon my shoulders. Is this the figure of a king? No, the uwu better becomes the hand of Kanipahu now than the staff of sovereignty. Here have I contentedly dwelt for many years, and here it is my will to peacefully die. Then are we without hope, replied the priest, in a tone of unfeigned sadness. No, not without hope, returned Kanipahu. 
My sons are in the valley of Waimanu. I have heard from them many times. They are worthy of their blood. Seek out Kalapana. He is brave, manly, sagacious. Tell them that upon his shoulders Kanipahu, his father, places the burden of the war against Kamiole and in advance bequeaths to him all his valor may win, even the sovereignty of Hawaii. You are right, great chief, said the priest. We are not without hope. Kalapana shall answer for his father, and from every heiau in Hawaii shall prayers be spoken for his success. The priest received the directions necessary to enable him to communicate with the sons of Kanipahu, and secretly returned to Hawaii to fan the smouldering fires of rebellion and prepare for the coming struggle. Although the high priesthood had become too firmly established in the power family to be changed by Kamaiole, he could not disguise his dislike for the innovations made by the southern line upon the simpler worship of his fathers, and neither confidence nor cordiality existed between the political and religious authorities. The rebellion against Kamiole was therefore secretly but earnestly assisted by the entire priesthood, and when Kalapana raised the standard of revolt, the people flocked to his support by thousands. The rebellion was organized with extraordinary rapidity, and when Kalapana suddenly made his appearance in Kohala at the head of the large army, Kamiole was in no condition to meet him. He hurriedly dispatched his Lunapas or war messengers to the chiefs of Kohala, Kona, Hamakua, and Hilo, commanding their prompt assistance, and summoned the priests and diviners of the Hayao of Mukini to make unusual sacrifices to the gods and to bring him at once the augeries of the uprising. But the chiefs responded with no alacrity to his call, and the diviners informed him that triumph to his arms was possibly only in Kona. Kamaiole therefore abandoned Kohala, and with such force as he was able to assemble, fell back into North Kona, where the quotas of warriors from the neighboring districts were ordered to join him. Amidst great popular enthusiasm, Kalapana marched into northern Kahala without opposition and took possession of the royal mansion from which his father had been driven into exile 18 years before. Kanipahu had not overestimated the capacity of his son. By instinct, he was a soldier, and from the moment that he appeared at the head of his army, the chiefs who had been rallied to his support by the priesthood saw that the quiet and dreamy recluse of Wamanu was made to command, and their enthusiasm in his cause, which was soon shared by the people, made easy his way to victory. Learning that Kamaiole had fallen back into Kuna, into Kona, Kalapana resolved to follow him without delay, and if possible bring him to battle, before reinforcements could reach him from the south. The auguries were more than favourable. They were not even ambiguous. They expressly declared that Kamaiole would be killed in Kona. It was, therefore, with confidence and enthusiasm that Kalapana and his steadily increasing army 
started on their march to the adjoining district of Kona. Meantime, Kamiole was not inactive. He had succeeded in gathering a force of 8,000 men, and learning that Kalapana was advancing from Kahala, resolved to give him battle at a place called Anehumalalu, not far from the northern line of Kona. The point was selected for its strategical advances, and there Kamaiole, doubtful of the result, for he could see that the tide had set in against him, determined to end the struggle. There was but a two days' march between the hostile camps, and Kalapana pushed forward with cautious haste. The priests and Kaulas had promised him success, and the most influential chiefs of Hamakawa and Kohala were at his side. He had brought him from Wamanu, where it had been secreted for 18 years the war god of Pili, who had been redecorated and was born in front of him in charge of the high priest. And with him, to share his fate, went his young wife, Makia, to care for him with wounded, to fight by his side, perhaps should tide of battle turn against him. For at that time and later, the more courageous of the wives and daughters of the chiefs, not infrequently in emergencies, took an active part in the field. On the morning of the third day, after Kalapana's departure from Kohala, the two armies confronted each other, and Kalapana immediately organized his forces for battle. Kamaiole saw that he was outnumbered and resolved to await the attack behind his defenses. In the face of the great gods against him, in numbers he was by no means hopeful, and besides, the auguries were unsatisfactory, and three times the night before he had heard the scream of the Alaye, the bird of evil omen. But no feeling of fear affected him. Filled with gloomy courage, he cheered his warriors with promises of victory, and armed with a javelin and heavy Valpala, or rude halberd, placed himself at the most exposed point of his defences and awaited the attack. The battle opened, and with a wild rush, a heavy division of Kalapana's forces, armed with spears, clubs and stone axes, was hurled against the rough stone wall, four feet, five feet in height, behind which the enemy found partial protection. The wall was levelled in places, and desperate hand-to-hand -hand conflicts followed, but the assault was finally repulsed. Rallied and reinforced, a second charge was made, but with no better success. The loss of life was great, and the result began to look doubtful, but Kalapana was not discouraged by these costly failures. Withdrawing and strengthening the attacking division and announcing that he would lead the next assault in person, he ordered an attack in the rear of the enemy by his entire reserve. This involved a rapid march of two or three miles and the passage of a deep ravine which Kamaiola relied upon as a complete defence of his right flank. While his movement was being executed, Kalapana kept the enemy employed with heavy lines of skirmishers and frequent menaces of war decided to assault. For more than an hour, the sultry figure continued, Kalapana impatiently waiting for the appearance of his flanking column on the hill above the enemy. At length, he discovered the first advancing spears, and a few minutes later, the entire body came into view and began to pour down the slope. 
The final assault in front was then ordered, Kalapana taking command in person. The sudden attack in the rear carried consternation to Kamiole's warriors, but their undaunted leader coolly and resolutely prepared for the worst. Hastily taking from the front defences such spears as could be spared, he summoned the entire reserve, and with united force, sprang like a lion to meet the attack from the hill. It came like an avalanche and could not be stayed. The struggle was desperate. As his warriors fell on every side of him, Kamaiole moved like a tower of destruction through the conflict. He seemed to bear a charmed life, and men fell like grass before the sweep of his loud power. Suddenly, an old man of large mould, with the head bent and long, white hair and beard, sweeping his breast and stooping shoulders, stepped in front of Kamaiole, and with a heavy spear-pointed club, calmly but dexterously warded a blow of the terrible Laupala, aimed at his head, and answering quick as thought, fouled the royal warrior to the earth like a forest tree. Around and over the body of the fallen chief, a desperate struggle ensued, but it was of short duration. Under the command of Kalapana, the front defences had been carried, and such of the royal army as had escaped slaughter were seen wildly leaping over the walls and retreated in confusion in all directions. Pressing toward the rear at the head of his victorious warriors, Kalapana was attracted to the fierce hand-to-hand -hand conflict taking place over the body of Kamaole. Without stopping to inquire the cause, he promptly plunged into the thickest of the combat, backed by a few resolute followers, and speedily relieved the old white-haired warrior from a struggle which was taxing his strength to the utmost. This was the last stand made by the enemy in a body. What remained of the battle was a merciless massacre of the wounded, and the capture and retention alive of a few prisoners for sacrifice. Resting for a moment and taking a survey of the field, Kalapana's eyes fell upon the old warrior, who one, with one foot upon the breast of Kamaiole, he was leaning upon his war club and scanning the face of Kalapana. His ponderous weapon still dripped with gore, and his wrinkled face was splashed with the blood of his enemies. Where is Kamaiole? suddenly inquired Kalapana, grasping his weapon as if his work of death had not yet been finished. Where is Kamaiole? He repeated to those around him. Who has seen him? Here is Kamaiole, replied the old warrior, pointing with bloody finger to the face of the dying king. Halapana abruptly returned and for a moment gazed in the silence upon the face of his fallen enemy. Although wounded to death, Kamaiole was still living and his eyes showed that he was conscious of what was transpiring around him. By whose hand did he fall? inquired Kalapana. By mine, briefly answered the old man. And who are you? continued Kalapana, with something of a feeling of awe, who have thus come unsummoned in the guise of a god from our sacred temples to strike for the son of Kanopahu. The old man slowly raised his head, and brushing back the white hairs from his face, 
was about to speak, when the high priest, with Kaaus, bearing the war god of Kalapana, approached to greet his victorious chief. Recognizing the venerable warrior, the astounded high priest dropped on his knees before him, exclaiming, Kavipahu! Kavipahu! Almost in a dream, Kalapana, making himself known, embraced his father, whom he had not seen for eighteen years, and then respectfully charged him for coming secretly from Molokai and joining the army as a common warrior, when his rank and abilities entitled him to supreme command. The old chief smiled, sadly, as he replied, The purpose of my coming has been accomplished. With my own hand I have answered in blood to the treachery of Kamaiole, and paid him for the hump he has placed upon my shoulders. I shall return to Molokai, and there the old hunchback will spend his few remaining days in peace. These words were heard and doubtless understood by Kamaiolai, for he closed his eyes, and a smile of defiance played for a moment about his lips. Just then, Makia joined her husband and was overjoyed to find him victorious and unhurt. The first lull of battle, she had started in search of him with a calabash of water, and to reach him had been compelled to pick her way through ghastly heaps of dead. At the sound of her voice, sweetly replacing the din of battle, Kamaiole opened his eyes and fixed his gaze upon her face. Finally, his lips moved as he would speak. Instinctively, she approached the dying chief and kneeling poured into his open mouth a few swallows of water. Kalapana turned and smiled at Makia's humanity, unusual on barbarous battlefields. A grateful look came into the eyes of Kamaiole, and with a questioning glance he faintly syllabled, Iola, the name of his sister, and the mother of Makia, whom she closely resembled. Kalapana caught the word, and understanding its meaning in a tone not far from kind, replied, No, not Iola, your sister, whom you failed to kill, but Makia, her daughter, who is Kalapana's wife. Kamaiole convulsively raised his head and arms, whether in a spirit of rage or conciliation will never be known, and then dropped back dead. The remainder of the story may be briefly told. In disregard of all persuasion, Kanipahu returned at once to Molokai, where he lived and died in obscurity, earning his own living and assuming no rank. Kalapana was anointed king of Hawaii on his return to Kahala, and a hundred prisoners were sacrificed to the gods at Mukini. His reign was consolatory and peaceful, and with Makia, his full name was Makia Malamayahani, he became the ancestor of Kamehameha the Great. Black Clock Audio Tales is edited and produced by D.B. Spitzer in Badger's Drift Studios in Portland, Oregon. You can contact us at pgttcm.com, on Facebook at Black Clock Audio Tales, and just look for us, Black Clock Audio Tales. Thank you.